From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. One in five Coloradans is older than 60. In Mesa County, that number is one in four. And it's putting a lot of pressure on senior services like Meals on Wheels, which has a wait list. And that's the saddest thing, too, is we just built this brand new kitchen, this beautiful space that is able to do a thousand meals a day to meet the need of our community. We'll talk about what's behind the backlog and what support services need. Then, can something that wasn't created by a person still be considered art? That question about artificial intelligence has sparked a contentious debate among artists and critics alike. I think that it opens up a lot of possibilities from a creative point of view if it's used in a certain way, because every artist will want to use it differently. But I think that the biggest impact is going to be obviously on the market. If your philanthropic goals include supporting public radio, consider giving a gift of stock. In times of economic uncertainty, gifts of stock allow you to maintain liquidity and continue your support of CPR. For more information on how to donate stock, contact your financial advisor. You can also access our one sheet on making this type of gift on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. One in five Coloradans is older than 60. In Mesa County, that number is one in four, and it's putting a lot of pressure on senior services. Colorado Matters Western Slope producer Tom Hess reports that the wait list for Mesa County's Meals on Wheels program has groups calling for a boost to senior funding. So when is 104? But what year working? Next July 104. Great. I'll 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 try to remember because it'll probably be that hot outside too. You think? Yeah. <laughs> In July. Oh, let's hope not, right? <laughs> we'll get the door here. Thank you. Tom Baker is a volunteer for Mesa County Meals on Wheels, and he has all the characteristics you would expect of someone who makes this drive twice a week. Affable, kind-hearted, organized, and a first ballot Hall of Fame conversationalist. They did ask us, do you have any cranky old biddies? And I said, oh, I know one. <laughs> did, you, did, you, <laughs> did you really tell him? So we said, no, you need to talk to her. She's the best. Oh, so. One of Baker's regulars is 84-year-old Lori Means and Fruta. She says the meal deliveries help seniors stay in their homes by keeping their costs down and their weights up, not to mention chats with volunteers like Tom Baker. I think there's a lot of people that if they didn't have this, they would really have a bad problem. They do such a great job, pretty fantastic, to be honest with you. If Without this, well... I probably would be another 10 to 15 pounds less than what I am because I just wouldn't eat. But more than 100 homebound residents are on a waiting list to get these meal deliveries. They include a 98-year-old woman who lives alone and a 95-year-old veteran and amputee. Another Fruita-based client, Richard Hyatt, says it's critical to pare that wait list down. Well, it, it needs to be done because old people, 
don't have the abilities of when you were younger. I never realized in my own case that I would be bumping into things. I've got bruises that because I bump into something, and it all has to do with age. And Richard, who looks like Santa Claus, by the way, knows from experience that it's not just food those people are waiting on. Tom Baker, the volunteer driver, has tracked down replacement care supplies for Richard's wife Molly and hauls his trash can back from the curb, even though Richard says he doesn't have to. I'm almost 87 years old. My wife's an invalid, confined to bed. This is a real pleasure for us to be able to get this, and especially dealing with people like Tom, who's done a lot of things for me. And uh, I just enjoy the heck out of it. Stagnant state funding and the end of COVID-19 relief dollars factor into the shortfall. In October, Mesa County Commissioner sent a letter to Governor Polis asking the state to increase funding for senior services. That follows a similar request from state groups focused on aging. We're looking at, you know, over 20 percent deficit in our budget, um, and we're really going back to what our budget looked like in 2018. Heather Jones is the director for the Area Agency on Aging of Northwest Colorado. They coordinate services to help seniors continue living in their home. There really hasn't been an increase in the general fund for the Area Agencies on Aging since 2018, and we certainly have seen um, a significant increase, in, especially in our nutrition programs. And in that time, the state has gotten older. The Colorado Association for Area Agencies on Aging says that flat funding, paired with inflation, has meant an 8% decrease in state support over the last five years. Over that same period, Colorado's older adult population has increased 15%. Amanda DeBach is the executive director of Mesa County Meals on Wheels. She says she has the capacity and the facility to meet the need, just not the money. And that's the saddest thing, too, is we just built this brand new kitchen, this beautiful space that is able to do a thousand meals a day to meet the need of our community. And I'm having to, right, we're having to go down to doing, you know, 500 meals a day, down from the 800 that we were doing. You know, it is sad. It is sad. We're joined now in our Grand Junction studio by Amanda DeBach, who you just heard from. She runs the Mesa County Meals on Wheels program. Hi, Amanda. Hi. Give us a sense for the wait list for the Mesa County Meals on Wheels program. So I just checked the wait list this morning. There's 123 people waiting just on the home delivery side. So we have another wait list for the dining sites, the congregate meal program, um, and there's another 25 people on that list. So we have quite a few people waiting. What are those conversations like to let people know that there is a wait list and that it's going to be a lengthy one at that? It is heartbreaking. It is. It really is heartbreaking because a lot of these people, it's very hard for them to ask for help in the first place. So to get them to make that phone call, to get them to fill out the paperwork, to ask for that help, and then to have to turn around and tell them, no, that you have to wait, it is, it's very, very difficult. And I imagine... All of these cases are difficult in their own right. Yeah. I mean, and that's really like the 
some of them are really sad. Like, it, it, yeah, we've got a lot of veterans that are that are waiting on the list. We have people who are just out of the hospital and need a little bit of help to get them through recovery. And there's just there's nothing that we can do for any of them. Are they surprised to learn that there's a wait on this? It is really surprising to a lot of people. It's surprising to a lot of to anyone that I talk to that we have a wait list. Not just that we have a wait list, but that we have a wait list that has over 100 people on it. I mean, that's really unprecedented. Like, I've run a Meals on Wheels for 12 years now, and I've never seen anything like this. Like, this is just, this is, it's so much. Are other programs in the state struggling in the same way, other directors that you've spoken with? Yes. I don't know a single program right now that really does not have a wait list of some capacity. I was speaking with the director in Western Garfield County, and they said they have to triage this wait list. I imagine you guys have to do the same. Yes. It's a weighted wait list. (laughs) So we do everyone gets a score as they come in, as we're doing their paperwork. So people who have the highest need, they get there at the very top of the wait list. But when you've got 125 people on that wait list, even, you know, there's 50 of those people have the same exact score. So it is. it makes it really difficult to make those decisions. Can you tell us how COVID-19 impacted your services and what you learned about the need for Meals on Wheels through the pandemic? COVID really changed everything. I mean, for the past 15 years, We've been talking about how the need for services is just going to grow. More and more people are aging into needing senior services, needing supportive services. So we knew that growth was going to, we knew that that was coming, um, but COVID really just, it was like overnight. We went from serving about a little over 100,000 meals a year to over 250. I think at the height of COVID, we did 260,000 meals. And that COVID-19 funding is going away now, but it doesn't sound like the need is. We've not, again, like the height of COVID was 260,000 meals and we served 230,000 last year. So it's, the the need has not gone down. Once people get on services, they really, they stay on services for a lot longer than they used to. You've mentioned the. Meals on Wheels is more than just a meal for these people. What do you mean by that? We are a vital safety net for a group of people that are very much alone. The vast majority of the people that we serve, they live entirely alone. We don't have that connection with our neighbors anymore. So they're not really, they don't have people checking on them. We're not a fa- we're not as much of a family unit as a society as we used to be. Um, people are not going to churches as much. We don't have a built-in sense of community like we did 50, 60 years ago. So these people are completely and totally alone. The Meals on Wheels driver that we send out, oftentimes that's the only person they're going to see for for weeks. And there's so many times where our Meals on Wheels drivers have found they've caught people at the very beginning stages of a stroke. They've caught people who have fallen and hadn't been able to get up. They have literally saved people's lives. The Venn diagram of Meals on Wheels services crosses over onto a lot of different senior services funding. I'm thinking of hospital care. A lot of the directors I've talked to elsewhere mentioned that 
it's incumbent on seniors who have just been in the hospital to be able to have that meal delivery system. Where else does Meals on Wheels intersect with the broader picture of senior services? So I like to think of Meals on Wheels really as a gateway to other senior services. It is, it's just lunch. It's something that's really kind of easy to ask for. It's really, it's easy to, it's relatively easy to get signed up for. Um, And it's just, they have a senior will accept someone coming to the door. They knock, they just take the meal. They chat if they want to, they don't if they don't want to. It's really, really easy. So then it starts the wheels turning where they start thinking, oh, maybe I can have some other services come in. Maybe I can have somebody from Hilltop come in twice a week and clean for me. Maybe I can ask for more for more things. It's not my life didn't end. Everything isn't terrible just because I asked for help. And I think Meals on Wheels is really that gateway to getting people to ask for help. There's a push to not only bolster senior services funding next year, but also to tie it to inflation. Is that going to be enough for the challenges that these services face? Even if we had been flat funded this past year, we wouldn't have, we still would be in a wait list. It wouldn't be as bad. It wouldn't be nearly as bad. Um, But because we're spending so much more just on food, then we used to were spending 25% more per person per meal than we were last year. Like if we were flat funded, it just, it wouldn't have been enough. We still would have been short. And you have the capacity at your kitchen to do about twice as much as you're doing now. Yes. My kitchen was built to do a thousand meals right off the bat. And with some very minor tweaks, we could get that up to 2000 meals a day. And this is all just a funding issue. It's not necessarily a volunteers issue. It's not an organizational. It's just the money's not there. The money's not there. That is, it is, that is, that is the issue. There's very few issues that are just a one fix, <laughs> right? Like so many things are so nuanced and it's, then there's so many things that go into it and so many things that you fix. And this is not one of those issues. It is simply, we need money. Like that is really it. Like we, if we had funding, we could, COVID showed us if we have the funding, we didn't turn a single person away during COVID. We didn't have, for the first time in years, I didn't have a wait list. Um, when you give us the money, like look at the amazing things that we could do. And across the state of Colorado, senior services, Meals on Wheels programs, really, we showed everybody exactly what we could do if we were funded appropriately. Amanda DeBach, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Amanda DeBach runs the Mesa County Meals on Wheels program. She spoke with Colorado Matters Western Slope producer Tom Hess. Read Tom's reporting on this shortfall at CPR.org. After a short break, should something that wasn't created by a person still be considered art? I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. You're with Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. When it comes to health, there's always a human story to tell. I'm CPR health reporter John Daly. I devote myself to finding and telling those stories and to help you understand what it all means. I talk to researchers, medical professionals, policymakers, the most knowledgeable folks in their field, plus everyday Coloradans. 
These stories are your stories on the radio and online with graphics and helpful links. See more at CPR.org. Can something that wasn't created by a person still be considered art? That question about artificial intelligence has sparked a contentious debate among artists and critics alike. CPR's arts and culture reporter Eden Lane introduces us to some Colorado artists trying to find answers for themselves. AI image generators like DALI 2, Midjourney, and even Photoshop's generative fill feature have raised questions about whether computer-generated art is real art and where the creative process is headed. Recent court decisions upholding the Copyright Office decision that AI-generated art cannot be copyrighted provoke even more discussion. A lot more people took notice when Jason Allen and his Midjourney-assisted piece, Teatra the Opera, Spatial, won a prize at last year's Colorado State Fair. Allen spoke to CPR News public affairs reporter Andrew Kenny. Allen said this vision of this piece first came to him while he was half asleep one night, and then he used Midjourney to help him actually execute the idea. He put in more than 600 written prompts, playing with the scenario and the details and the style he was requesting, until the platform finally delivered the visual foundation of the image that he wanted to create. Then Alan added some more pixels and details to the images using Photoshop and another service, and he ended up with the piece that he submitted to the State Fair. It does require a certain level of knowledge and skill in order to use effectively, in in the sense that you're wanting to create something based off of your own vision. So Alan freely acknowledges that he used this software that has these amazing new capabilities to generate the art, but he claims that ultimately it was his idea and that he is the creator of the piece. Now, he faced a lot of backlash from artists who were angry that he had used this platform to win this contest, and that's really bothered him. I don't need to be called an artist to get some kind of validation from you or anybody else. I know who I am. So I'm an art creator. Like, I created this. He claims that some artists are just unhappy that he and others are using technology to make art more democratic almost, to let anybody become more creative. While the controversy around Alan's win continues, others are ready to keep exploring AI and art. Nietzsche Noel wanted to start this vital discussion early on, so she invited a few artists to reinterpret or rework an existing piece of their own with the help of AI technology for a unique show at her gallery in the heart of Denver's Santa Fe Arts District. AI Morphosis, exploring the fusion of human and machine in visual art at Nietzsche Noel Gallery. And I worked in technology for 20 years um, after getting my art degree, so I'm always always kind of doing some new things or looking at uh, different things. And I've been working with AI uh, in my artwork since I started painting again in 2019. Anne Morgan has worked in tech since 1997. She built her own AI model using her own images and data and used them as text prompts for AI-generated images. I trained my own model, so I used that to develop sketches to work from to paint. And that's, I developed my own model using all of my own images and things that I've collected from friends um, and different things I've collected from the internet. So it's all my own memories and all my own data that I'm pulling from. When you say you built your own model, can you describe a little bit about what that is for anyone who doesn't quite have the background in in doing something like that? So... uh, 
if you think about AI and building images uh, using a platform like Midjourney or Dali 2 or anything like that, you're using a text prompt to get what you want. So you develop a concept. And when you submit that text prompt to that AI platform, it's going to look at all the information that it trained on, which is think of all the images on the internet up to 2021, um, and then build you an image from that large, large database kind of, of knowledge um, to, to build your image. And so training my own model is taking that to a very, very, very small scale. So I have under 400 images that are all mine. Um, so when I text prompt that, uh, what I'll get is something that's probably, like I recognize a lot of the images or pieces of the images that it develops just because it's so small and trained on my own. So it's just, you know, just very, very limited uh, kind of in a, in a good way to get the results that I want that are from my own memory instead of the entire internet. Morgan says she found the experience of incorporating AI into her finished pieces to be fascinating and plans to continue using AI in her future work. I think using AI in my practice for painting, it's so buried and the finished product is so far away from the what I get from AI. It's more of a prompt for me. So it doesn't that doesn't affect me and it doesn't affect the way that I use it in my art practice in that way. And when I think about using it as a finished product like I did in the second piece that I developed for the show, it doesn't really impact me there either in the way that I'm using it because the results are reformatted into an art piece. The the actual AI is just part of the overall project. So I don't think it affects it there either. Um, I think AI not being copyrightable would affect photographers who start using it or, or trying to use it for stock art photography or trying to make money off of it that way um, when it's not buried in an artistic process. I, I think that's when it makes it much different. Andre Rodriguez initially had some reservations about AI as a digital artist, but saw this as an opportunity to explore and educate himself about it. Rodriguez experimented with different AI platforms, and he found that AI could generate different styles and tones depending on the prompts and instructions given. What made you want to be part of it? Well, it's it's kind of I would say two two reasons. One is I've before the show I, I dabbled in AI a little bit, but I was a little bit opposed to it being a digital artist. And there's there's definitely like a conversation around: is it really art? Is it gonna take over the kind of work that I do. And I would say the second reason is that it, it seems like it's an unstoppable force. So I, I really wanted to, to just get into it and not be afraid of it. And I thought, well, if, if someone like Nietzsche is getting a show together around AI art, then this is, this is a perfect opportunity for me to really explore it and get more familiar with it and educate myself because something around the idea that ignorance kind of like holds people back. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't, I didn't want to be held back. Take me back to how you were thinking about it before you began the process. You said you were somewhat opposed to it. Can you describe that for me? Yeah, so I, I've seen quite a bit of the work that's been done by AI generators or people using the generators. I found some of it interesting. I found some of it kind of maybe cliche, but but maybe that's 
the the starting point with a lot of different kind of art forms mm -hmm. is getting getting the cliches out so then you can start to explore the rest of what's possible so i, I was a little opposed to it like i said um, but definitely very curious and a lot of times when I, when I tell people I'm a digital artist, at least the last year or so, people say, oh, you, you do AI art or AI animations and kindly uh, decline that and <laughs> um, show them some of my work. And uh, I would say that some of my work maybe resembles uh, some of what AI has been doing. So I really wanted to try to understand it more, more than anything. Rick DeLago found the challenge to use AI in his art intriguing. And the challenge was to take a piece of yours and then use AI to create a response. It was basically to take a painting that we've already done and turn it into an AI version of itself. Was how I understood it to actually be. Some artists did additional work on it afterwards, mm -hmm. but it was basically man versus the computer. You know, and just basically, which I think was an interesting way to go because I can see this working the other way more where you're using the AI as inspiration for a painting or for reference for a painting or for a, a, a concept of a painting, but not the other way around where you're taking a, a like finished painting and turning it into like an AI version of itself. Delago acknowledges the concerns surrounding AI use in art, particularly in terms of copyright and the potential displacement of artists. What are your concerns, if any, about AI use by artists or in place of artists, if you have any concerns? I do. Is I think that it opens up a lot of, of like possibilities from a creative point of view if it's used in a certain way, because every artist will want to use it differently. But I think that the biggest impact is going to be obviously on the market, because I think like a lot of industries, labor is something that people want to pay less for. I mean, we can see that now with all these labor strikes happening. And as we order more and more things on Amazon, how many people are being displaced from, from jobs? And I think we could be looking at the same thing when it comes to people buying art or maybe even creating their own art, because it's not just necessarily artists that can use this to make art. A non-artist could also use it too to make art and be able to generate a, a painting that they could possibly print out on canvas and then hang in their house or a portrait of their daughter, somebody that's never painted can create from a photograph a portrait of their daughter done in the style of a Cezanne or something, you know, a non-artist. So I think it opens up, there's a lot to unpack here. And I think it's going to have a huge impact on the economy, huge. And, and not specifically to artists, but I think just across the board with these AI programs that can generate essays or proposals or wills or music like uh, like you could write a song and get the computer to make it sound like uh taylor swift is uh singing it and i think it's you know i think that there was a false sense that the creative industries were sort of protected from this even though it's been coming along for a long time it's been coming down the pike it's just amazing to me that so recently because this is only within the past year, I think, that the whole art thing has really become a thing to wrestle with, is that it's really come a long way in very, very short time. Tyree Jones decided to use Generative Phil from Photoshop to see the AI's interpretation of her work. Jones says she found the process simple, but felt it encroached on her artistic process, and she prefers to remain honest and simple in her portraits. I was surprised at how simple it was. 
So I did try to prompt a few things a couple of times. Like I said, I wanted to add the rest of the body to the figure in my painting, see if it would be able to do that. But that kept popping up as it was unable to do that. And it felt a little bit constricting as Mm. an artist. So I just decided to let it do what it wanted without my interference and was just surprised at how simple it was. I thought it would be much more technologically advanced. Is it something you think you might want to continue to add to your to your toolkit? For my practice, probably not. It depends. If it grows in miraculous ways and say I take a photo of a figure because I photograph all of my own subjects and maybe the lighting is not exactly what I wanted or maybe I want to add them holding something that they didn't have, maybe I might consider using it. But as of now, probably not. What's your biggest takeaway from this experience, Terry? My biggest takeaway? My biggest takeaway is that the art community is always evolving and there's always something new to look forward to. I think if there is something new that seems a bit daunting, it's important to just go headfirst into it instead of being so afraid of it because I was afraid of it at first. And then being encouraged to use it made me feel so much more comfortable with it. It made me understand it in a better way. And it even made me appreciate some AI art that I do see when people are editing and mashing together different photos that they make. Like that does take time and effort. So it just gave me a completely different outlook on it and let me be more open to new ideas. I have no idea where it's going to develop from here. And it can go in so many different ways and we could receive it in so many different ways. Are you concerned that the work of artists as cataloged by the AI databases is in danger of being exploited to create other things? I feel like artists are already exploited, which is why there's protests and actors aren't allowed or working right now because I'm an actor as well. I think that artists already aren't protected when it comes to copyright laws and having their work stolen from them. So I don't think AI is going to change any of that. If anything, I do believe that with the abundance of everyone being able to have access to these tools and being able to make so many things now that only artists had the gift to make, it will up the value of things that actually are handmade by artists. Because anyone can go online and make something beautiful, but then the artists themselves will be praised when it's their own original work and not something that was generated by AI. That's what I think. So I'm not concerned (laughs) as as much. Topher Strauss creates landscape art using photography and collage, drawing with a tablet and stylus in Adobe Photoshop, but he never used AI before this project. However, this process did inspire him to get back into poetry. So how do you describe the experience? You said you don't want to do it again. Was it a bad experience? Not at all, Eden. It was an awesome experience, and I learned a tremendous amount. The reason that I don't want to use AI in uh, in my work going forward is because I'm an artist for a reason. I like to use my hands, and 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 I'm very tactile. And what I found is that 
At least where it's at now, artificial intelligence, especially using mid-journey, is all prompt-based, meaning that to generate art using mid-journey, it's, it's basically poetry. It's learning how to use words in a way to describe visually what you want to obtain. And you said that even had a residual effect of having you continue to write poetry. <laughs> yeah, it was. A, I, I've I've focused from writing uh, to being a fine artist, and that experience of of literally writing hundreds and hundreds of variations of what I'd like to achieve visually inspired me to get back into my poetry. So uh, it was a neat process. I loved it. Strauss says the Copyright Office decision to reject ownership of AI-generated works is a murky but necessary conversation. I think it's a smart decision to exclude copyrights from anything that's, that uses AI. And I, I, I support it. I like it. And that, I think that's going to that's gonna help to further differentiate who's a professional artist and who's just, a, you know, who uses AI. Kind of like... Um, who's a professional photographer and, and who uses their iPhone, right? Can you clarify, to make sure I understand what you mean, when you say prohibit copyright for work that's produced using AI, do you mean work that's solely produced with AI, or do you also include artists who might use generative fill or parts of AI in their process but still create other parts of it on their own? I just want to make sure I understand what you mean. Yeah, I think... I think yeah. Even using some of the tools of AI to create mm -hmm. artwork is is still using AI, and there's and it's hard to differentiate how much artificial intelligence one uses in their projects and how they use it. So, like most laws, I see this law evolving and understanding artificial intelligence and how to restrict or or enable artists from a legal perspective as time progresses. How would you describe your reaction or your concerns or your thoughts about using AI in art right now? Yeah, I, I well, I like to consider myself a futurist. I'm I'm on the cutting edge of technology. I use technology in in my process of creating art. So I really dove into understanding artificial intelligence and understanding not only where it is but where it's headed. Um, and it concerns me, like the notion that that artists can someday, probably someday sooner than later, be replaced by artificial intelligence is scary to me. And I didn't see it or understand why that was being said until I started to dive into using AI in, in this specific project. The fact of the matter is, is, is it's a snowball and the, the development f speed of AI is just overwhelming. And it concerns me. It concerns me not only as an artist, but as a human being. AI is going to be writing legal documents, is going to be helping to choose what stocks to buy, is going to be making paintings and making f photos that are not photos, but, uh, but are crafted from words, right? And made to look like photos. AI is going to be replacing so much of what we do as a species that I foresee us being replaced quite a bit by AI. And, and our whole purpose, our whole sense of being as humans is to, to have a sense of purpose. And I'm afraid with artificial intelligence, that sense of purpose is going to be going away. Will there be people on the outliers who, who don't need that subsidized income and want to work for themselves? You bet. But I think a majority of humans in the not so distant future are going to be relying on AI a lot more than they're relying on themselves now.
Strauss says he sees historical correlations between the rise of AI and other major developments with positive and negative potential. What I learned through this specific assignment and project is the power of AI. Originally, I thought that artificial intelligence was kind of like the invention of the internet or the invention of the iPhone. But what I realized is that it's kind of like the invention of electricity, <laughs> that it's, it's, a, it's a major moment in history. And that, that moment is, is spawned by Verrucht, uh, uh, a, a time in, in our history when all chaos is kind of at the helm, like COVID and the pandemic, right? And it causes a lot of change and a lot of things to come to the foreground and technology specifically. So I think that we're at a moment in the history where we're, it's like the industrial revolution. AI is going to evolve at a quicker rate than we can control it. And, and the consequences or benefits and or benefits are going to be greater than anything we can comprehend. AI is also impacting the music industry. Earlier this year, a song employing AI to mimic Drake and The Weeknd was posted on streaming sites, then withdrawn. Some saw it as proof that unregulated AI may learn from and repurpose artists' copyrighted property. Earlier this month, the Beatles released Now and Then, what is billed as their last song features John Lennon's vocals that AI extracted from a demo he recorded in the 1970s. Paul, George, and Ringo began working on the long-rumored John Lennon demo in February of 1995 for the Beatles Anthology Project, but it was never finished due to the technological challenges of working with John's 1970s vocal tape. In 2022, a software technique built by Peter Jackson and his crew for the documentary series Get Back allowed John's vocal and piano parts to be separated. Now all four Beatles could revive and improve the original recording. The Beatles' continuous creative curiosity and technical obsession are reflected in this extraordinary musical archaeology story. Now and Then's journey took over five decades, and that AI technology made it possible. Images, music, and more can now be produced by using AI data from previously created pieces. The issues in the recently resolved screenwriters and actor strikes also dealt with AI and creative work. But the question remains, are the works created by AI art? I'm Eden Lane, CPR News. CPR arts and culture reporter Eden Lane. Earlier, you heard from Tyree Jones and Topher Strauss, just some of the local artists who are trying to navigate the renaissance of the arts and artificial intelligence. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. One of Colorado's most beautiful, difficult, and dangerous 14ers is Crestone Needle in the Sangre de Cristos. The strenuous climb to the pointed summit is on a steep trail of loose rocks and scree, and often ice. Nearby, jagged Crestone Peak is almost as tough to climb. These two 14ers are in a group called the Crestones. Another is Kit Carson Mountain, which the citizens of the town of Crestone had long called Mount Crestone. They tried to get Kit Carson officially renamed, but the U.S. Board on Geographic Names voted it down unanimously, worried about the confusion if yet another mountain had Crestone in its name. Two of Kit Carson's sub-peaks memorialize space shuttle incidents, Columbia Point and Challenger Point. Then there's Mount Humboldt, a little easier to climb, but even it has had its share of fatalities. A reminder of the great danger amid the spectacular group of 14ers called the Crestones. A Colorado postcard from CPR, supported by National Jewish Health. 
1915, a young couple put down roots in northeastern Colorado. David and Anna Amon built themselves a sod house and started a family farm. Today, the fifth generation of that family is still at work there. History Colorado named Amon Angus Farms a centennial farm in September, which honors farms and ranches that are at least 100 years old. That's when I spoke with David and Anna's great-granddaughter, Wendy Lewis. Wendy, welcome to the program. Thank you. I think a lot of people these days are lucky if they even know their grandparents, but five generations, that's got to be pretty rare. What does it mean to you to have family ties dating back that far and for the younger generation to be following in your grandparents' footsteps, still farming? Yes, it's very exciting for us here. Definitely as a child growing up, my most precious memories were times with our family where we always worked together. I've never really known anything else other than working together as a family. So as a child, I knew my great grandpa and didn't get to spend a lot of time with him. But then working side by side with my grandpa, my dad, and now my husband and I are here. And now our son-in-law is now back in the farm with us as well. And so what a, what a great privilege it is to always be surrounded by our family and to have us continue to just be invested in agriculture. It's pretty exciting for us. Yeah, it definitely feels very special. Tell me a little more about the first generation, your great-grandparents that you just referenced, David and Anna Amen. Mm -hmm. So they actually are German by just their customs and, and descent, but they were living in Russia at the time. And though many of those individuals from that particular area where they are from came over in the early 1900s. And uh, my great-grandparents actually came originally to the Nebraska area and started there and eventually moved over to the Western Slope and then finally veered more this direction. They had found this farm where we are at today and they began with not very much. There was four brothers that all came together and they purchased a section and then split that up so that each of the four brothers um, had a quarter. So we've had many descendants in this area who have farmed and been in agriculture for a long time. What do you know about what they planted and how successful the farm was at that time? Yeah, the farms at that time were very diverse. My grandpa would tell us a lot about sugar beets. That was one of their dominant crops that they grew, but they would have a variety of corn and wheat and sugar beets and alfalfa. And then my grandpa grew up with Hereford cows. They had milk cows, they had chickens. He eventually added pigs to the operation as well. You know, of course, everything that they would have done from both a livestock and farming standpoint would have been done by horse. So it would have been very, very labor intensive. He spoke a lot about what it took to grow a lot of those crops. And a lot of those things were all done by hand. And so when you were raising something like sugar beets, you had to go through and weed and thin those beets out. And so their labor levels were definitely a lot different than what we're used to today. Definitely sounds like a lot of work. Very intense. Yes. <laughs> now, let's talk about the next generation. That would be okay. your grandfather, Walter. He mm -hmm. won a special designation from History Colorado as well as a centennial farmer, which is somebody who's at least 100 years old and has been in agriculture for most of their life. Sadly, he died in July at age 101 before he could receive that award, I can imagine that must have been a bittersweet moment for your family. 
it was the um, important piece of that for us was that we'd actually received the letter that he had um, received the award. And so he did get to read that, mm-hmm. um, which was very, you know, just, just a blessing for him to see that he had um, received that and been designated as a centennial farmer. We're thankful that he, he knew it was definitely a important moment for him. And just the fact he'd often tell us he was very excited to get to a hundred years old and uh, was pretty thrilled with that in the first, you know, the first ride anyway. And he would often tell us that, you know, there's not very many my age around anymore. And uh, (laughs) we would definitely agree with him and that he was right. (laughs) I understand that by the time he was born, there was an actual farmhouse, a little more than a sod house. What was it like for him growing up there? He was born in 1922. They had finished their house in 1921, and they called it the big house on the hill, which it did seem very large in those days compared to their sod house they were in previously. He would have grown up with his um, three sisters and brother, and Mm. they all worked on the farm with their parents. Their school was a uh, like a one-room schoolhouse, of course, that was close, and it was actually called the Amon School. He did go to high school at our one of the closest um, nearby towns at Crook, Colorado. So he graduated from Crook High School. Um, but then after that, he chose to remain on the farm. And so grandpa never knew anything other than being involved in farming and ranching. Can you share with us one special memory of Walter? Oh, one of the things that as grandkids, we probably all loved is he was known for always greeting us um, with a little pinky wave. And so he would always wave wherever he was located at, whether he was sitting on the tractor or he was on his four-wheeler or just, you know, around the farm. And he would greet you with his little pinky waving at you. And so for us as grandkids, that was his signature thing about grandpas. He would always greet us that way. And probably one of the most sweet memories for us was just to watch him do the things he loved to do. But he was an inventor. And he loved to create things that helped on the farm. So anywhere from maybe something that would help us get through a gate more easily, or it was an actual piece of equipment. He he built three different loaders. And his most recent one, he had used a bus chassis and then created it into a loader that we could use for a loader on our operation. Mm. And he was a figure and a thinker. So he would sit at the kitchen table and simply draw and draw and draw and draw and figure things out and, you know, write out exactly how he wanted everything to work. And he'd do that for a long time prior to ever starting into a project. One of my favorite times would always be to just be able to tinker down with grandpa in the shop and just enjoying seeing what he's doing. And we got to do a lot of um, organizing things and and, and cleaning the shop and, and things that you should do when you're the kid watching. But those were always fun times to just be around and just watch him think and build and be so innovative, which was kind of, again, one of the things that made him very unique to us as our grandpa. Did that play a role in you deciding to carry on the family tradition? Yeah, for sure. Between my grandpa and my dad, uh, my dad had the opportunity to farm with grandpa all of his life as well. And so getting to see that as a young person and being a part of that, and I was you know, that was what I did as a kid. I would usually go with grandpa and dad and, and help them out on the farm. And and so, yes, definitely the things that they did and what they instilled in us, they were definitely stewards of the land. And 
their goals were always to make something better and leave it better for the next generation. What has held this together for you as a family all these years? Mm. Without question, I would say that just um, having a strong faith, a faith in God as our provider and also in our family as a unit continues to keep us together and keep us wanting to continue the operation and continue that process that our um, generations before us started. And so I think just that piece of it is what continues us the desire to want to stay together and keep farming together and continue our farm. More and more agriculture is becoming big industry. And we often hear that the family farm is going away. Do you agree with that? I don't think the family farm is going to go away. I think families still want to be able to farm together. I feel like we are seeing that a lot of those farms are growing in acreages and numbers because it's necessary to be able to still be profitable on those operations. Now, that's not to say that we haven't seen continued growth in just you know corporate agriculture in different ways, but our hope would be that even as farms get larger in size, they'll still maintain that family unit that's running that operation. Um, And that would kind of be, you know, our hope that that's the direction agriculture will go. Wendy, thanks so much for sharing your family story with us. You're very welcome. That was Wendy Lewis, who co-owns Amon Angus Farms near Sterling in Northeast Colorado. We spoke in September, shortly after History Colorado named it a 2023 Centennial Farm. The annual award honors farms and ranches that are at least 100 years old and still in business. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Tom Hess, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbraño, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner, and I'm Chandra Thomas Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.